0: It seems that hardly a day goes by where we don't see a poll, or two, or more, shedding light on the state of the presidential race. Polls have become a huge part of how Americans track our elections, fueling a steady stream of cable news segments and online think pieces. And this year especially, journalists and voters alike have watched as the polls have swung rapidly in every direction, trying to gauge opinions in a race that has been almost impossible to predict. And few people have followed these polling swings as closely as Steve Kornacki, one of the most prominent analysts of political data in the country.
1: Now the polls suggest he is sliding to either a distant third or a fourth place.
0: The crowded Democratic field has been keeping him on his toes, but we are lucky enough to grab some time with him recently. Is uh, Gabe, can you yes. hear me? Yes, hi Steve. Hey
1: Gabe, I'm sorry I'm a little late for this. I Thank you for waiting for me.
0: No problem, I, I know you're super busy. I really appreciate you take, taking the time to talk. Even though he's known as a household name among political junkies, he says his passion for numbers started as a kid, eagerly awaiting box scores in the morning paper.
1: You know, who got how many points and you know how many uh, rebounds, how many assists, uh, how many minutes, all that sort of thing. I, I, I sort of started understanding sports originally through numbers, and I think as I kind of got interested in politics, that same instinct kicked in, in some ways, to try to use numbers to understand what was going on.
0: In this episode, we'll walk through some key lessons from political polling's past and try to extrapolate where the field may be headed in the future and even give you some tips on how to make the best use out of polls. Because problems often cited with political polling might have less to do with the data and more to do with how the data is interpreted. I'm Gabe Fleischer, and from St. Louis Public Radio and me, this is Wake Up to Politics. In order to understand where polling is at today, and where it could be going in the future, it might help to walk through some big polling misses from the past. And fortunately, Steve was happy to help out. Let's start with a classic.
1: President Truman, a man who had carried his fight to the people, was cheered by supporting New Yorkers. Democrats had almost conceded the election.
0: You've probably seen the iconic image of Harry Truman, grinning as he holds up a copy of the Chicago Tribune on election night 1948. Truman beat his Republican challenger, Thomas Dewey, that night. But the big headline in the newspaper in his hands? Dewey defeats Truman. The
1: man of the people had accomplished a political miracle. At his home in Independence, Missouri, President Truman accepted the congratulations of the nation.
0: The polls had gotten the race very, very wrong. Or more accurately, the poll, singular.
1: You might have, like, a poll a month before the election. Um, that would be the polling, you know, in 1948. And and on that basis, Truman was, you know, looked like he was running far behind Dewey in 1948, and it sort of set the expectations um, that, that Truman was going to lose and was probably going to lose badly.
0: But we've come a long way since Dewey defeats Truman. The modern era of political polling began about five decades ago.
1: You know, in the old days... That term smoke-filled rooms existed, right. and so you go to the convention, you didn't really have any primaries, and the, the party leaders would pick uh, candidates at the convention. Well, in 76, you know, really you were getting into the era now of, of, of primaries and caucuses deciding this thing.
0: Listeners of our first episode will remember that 1976 was a key year in the history of the Iowa caucuses. That's when the presidential primary process really got into the hands of the voters, as opposed to behind-the-scenes party bosses. Suddenly, we needed a way to know how everyday Americans were thinking about politics. And to add to the chaos, the Democrats had an especially packed field competing for the chance to take on a Republican president, not too unlike the race this year. That year was when exit polling really came into vogue, giving an insight into how people felt as they left the voting booth.
1: Uh, And the networks began commissioning and, and, and conducting these, um, these exit polls and, and back then in these primaries there'd be one for CBS, there'd be one for ABC, there'd be one for NBC and eventually they, they kind of came to a point where they said you know this is this is awfully inefficient we're all spending all this money to conduct you know a poll of the same group of voters in the same state for the same reason so why don't we pool all of our resources and, um, and start doing exit polling that way and since about uh, 1992 you've been seeing uh, you know versions of that.
0: Mm-hmm. As polls became more commonplace the news media started relying on them to predict how people would vote before they even walked into a voting booth, fueling narratives that haven't always turned out to be true. The next story Steve shares is a cautionary tale from the 2008 Democratic primary in New Hampshire 12 years ago.
1: Back in 2008, mm-hmm. I was covering politics, though, um, and if you remember, um, Democratic presidential race, and it was a it's always truncated between Iowa and New Hampshire, but it was particularly tight, the turnaround in 2008. The Iowa caucuses were on January 3rd. They had to move them up ridiculously early because there was this whole um, battle between the states to try to be Mm -hmm, first. mm -hmm. So to make sure they were first, Iowa had to go January 3rd, you know, two days after New Year's. And New Hampshire usually goes eight days after Iowa. But in 2008, they went five days after Iowa. So it was January 3rd, uh, Iowa, January 8th, New Hampshire. Really fast turnaround. And and if you remember in the Iowa caucuses, of course, it it was Barack Obama who won. Right. Um, and it was it was a big big breakthrough for him. A lot of people didn't think he could do that. His margin was was stronger, I think, than even people who thought he might win um, thought it would be.
0: At this defining moment in history,
1: you have done what the cynics said we couldn't do. And it's it's a classic example, I think, of just how the the sort of narrative of the campaign can Mm -hmm. change on a dime because all of a sudden, the next day, Obama's being treated as, well, that's it, he's going to be the Democratic nominee, Hillary Clinton's in a free fall, and they go to New Hampshire, and in that tight window in between those states, you start, it takes a couple days, but you start to get polling out, you know, basically that weekend before the New Hampshire primary, and there it is, you know, Barack Obama's up 10 points in New Hampshire. Today, Obama has exploded into a double-digit 10-point lead, 39 to 29 over Clinton. John Edwards is back in the mid-team. <laughs> and it just, and it felt like, because that window was so tight, it just felt like that momentum that had just instantly kind of generated on Obama's behalf after Iowa was just overwhelming. And it was just, it was, it was impossible to conceive of a scenario where New Hampshire would even be close. And then, of course, you're saying, well, if Obama wins Iowa, if he wins New Hampshire, then he's going to be unstoppable. It certainly looked that way. Um, and I think even folks in the Clinton campaign felt that. And I just remember watching the returns come in on New Hampshire primary night 2008. And it starts out close, and you're kind of waiting for Obama to pull away. And then Clinton edges into the lead, and you're saying, well, you know, maybe the college towns haven't come in yet or something. And then she's up, you know, three or four points. And you're saying, holy cow, she just might win this thing. And then she did.
2: Over the last week, I listened to you. And in the process, I found my own
1: voice Um, I mean there's all sorts of theories about what what might have happened to 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 get her to that victory in New Hampshire in 2008 but it's one of the most sort of out of the blue totally unexpected Mm -hmm. totally saw no sign of it in any single poll that came out before you know the election uh, results I've ever seen
0: This is an example I'll be keeping in mind during this election cycle as we watch another volatile primary fight. Polls only tell us part of the story, and it's important never to be too sure we know the outcome of an election until votes have actually been cast. Because from Harry Truman, to Barack Obama, to Donald Trump, there are tons of elections throughout American history that have just defied prediction. And that brings us to 2016, an election that sparked a hot bit of criticism about polling and its shortcomings. But Steve says those critiques might not actually be fair.
1: I think it's a narrower issue than it's it's um, often presented as. And, that, and that's fine, I understand it, because I think I think the upshot of what everybody was hearing kind of collectively in the fall of 2016 was Hillary's got this thing in the bag. And there were, you know, errant voices here and there who were throwing, you know, sending out some cautionary notes, but I, I, I think collectively the average voter, the average consumer of news, took that kind of message from the media's coverage and, and looks up at the result and says, yeah, you told us this wasn't going to happen. And I, I think what was actually happening, though, in terms of the polling was the national numbers weren't that off. Mm-hmm. You know, I, I think our final NBC News Wall Street Journal poll had Hillary up four points, I believe it was, over Trump. Um, you know, and She ends up winning by nearly three.
0: So where did the polls go wrong in 2016? We look to another top poll watcher to answer that question and give us a look at where the field is headed in the future, right after this break. In the last segment, Steve Kornacki was talking about the national polls basically getting the 2016 election right on the money. To piggyback on his analysis, we talked to Nathaniel Rakich, a reporter at the data-heavy outlet 538.
2: I guess I would explain my job as I just write about the twists and turns of elections. So new polls that come out, new fundraising numbers, um, debates, of course the election results themselves and analyzing them uh, and it's kind of their ties into demographics and partisanship.
0: Like Steve, Nathaniel says the national polls in 2016 were pretty accurate.
2: The issue is that people kind of weren't thinking about, you know, they didn't take seriously the idea that there could be an electoral college winner who didn't win the popular vote.
0: So to understand why President Trump's victory surprised so many people, you need to look at the state level polling.
2: So Michigan, uh, Pennsylvania, Wisconsin, states like that in the upper Midwest, you know, those states were missed by the polls. Uh, Hillary Clinton's vote share was um, kind of dramatically overestimated. You know, that was a big blind spot for everybody.
0: The prevailing thought was that states that went blue in the previous election cycles would most likely stay the same. And there was another blind spot in the polling, one that is already changing methodology this election cycle. In
2: 2016, education became a big dividing line. Um, you know, In particular, whites without a college degree voted a lot more Republican, and whites with a college degree voted a lot more Democratic. And so if you are just waiting by race, for example, and you assume that you know white respondents are going to you know, be fairly monolithic in how they vote, that's just wrong. Um, and the issue is that college-educated whites are more likely, in fact, college, college-educated people in general are more likely to pick up the phone and answer a pollster's questions. And so if you do a poll and you don't wait by education, you're going to get a sample that is, um, very heavily skewed toward college educated people and uh, non college educated people are underrepresented. And of course, non college educated whites in particular are Donald Trump's base. So, in polls that don't wait by education, you're probably going to get some underestimation of Donald Trump. But a lot of pollsters have been starting to do that now ever since 2020 or ever since 2016. Not all of them. So, you know, there is still, you know, you should maybe watch out if you're able to dig into the methodology to see if a pollster uh, waits for education. That could teach you whether, you know, maybe to believe that poll or not in 2020.
0: But pollsters acknowledge that errors like that are always possible when trying to measure the electorate. So as Nathaniel says, it wasn't just the pollsters that were off, it's that many in the media and their audiences failed to accurately interpret what the polls were saying and imbued them with more certainty than they should have.
2: Anybody who was kind of saying with certainty, oh, like Hillary Clinton is definitely going to win, uh, you know, on the day before the election in 2016, that was just too confident.
0: So if basic assumptions about voter behavior are being challenged, and the news cycle keeps getting faster, where do we go from here? We asked Nathaniel for some basic tips or best practices for how you should read polls in a wild election cycle. Luckily, we went to the right person.
2: I have tons of guidelines. Um, Yeah, where, where to start, really.
0: Tip number one, not all polls are created equal.
2: The gold standard of polls are polls that use live interviewers. Uh, to conduct interviews over the phone. These are things like the ABC News-Washington Post poll, uh, Monmouth University, Quinnipiac University, Selzer & Company in Iowa, etc.
0: Tip number two, don't just look at the top-line numbers that the pollsters blast out it's possible that the margin of error could be just as important.
2: You know, say it's October, and you have a poll showing, you know, the eventual Democratic nominee leading uh, Donald Trump by, you know, let's say it's 46% to 44%, um, but that poll has a margin of error of plus or minus four. Um, that puts the Democratic nominee ahead, but within the margin of error. So statistically speaking, if you re-ran that poll a bunch of times, you would also get some results where Donald Trump is ahead.
0: Tip number three. Even once you've considered the source of a poll and its margin of error, you'll always be better served by looking towards the average of all the polls taken recently than just one poll on its face.
2: That's why sites like 538 um, average polls, or they create a model, something that um, kind of uses a dispassionate, unbiased way of um, like looking at all the polls holistically. Um, and that's how you, you know, you know. and again, like, like a polling average is always going to be better than looking at individual polls because I think it's just human nature to cherry pick one at a time.
0: But just like the voters they track, the methods of the pollsters themselves are undergoing slow changes as fewer people are picking up the phone for traditional landline-focused surveys. I asked both Steve and Nathaniel about where the future of polling is headed. And like most things, they say it'll likely be more and more digital. And we'll start with Steve, who says while online polling isn't quite at the level of landline polls yet, it would be short-sighted to dismiss them out of hand. You used
1: to say online poll, and people say, oh, yeah, that's just like the, you go to a website <laughs> and there's a poll up there and you click on it. Of, co- you know, of course, that's going to be you know, way off. But I think there's a lot more science to these. I think they're refining it. I think it is the future. I don't think it's quite there yet. I do. I think my instinct when I see an online panel, it's, it's a its a bigger grain of salt with the, with the online panel, but I don't dismiss it out of hand. Mm-hmm. Um, and, I, and I think we're getting to a place where that's probably, you know, where this is in some way, where this is, is gonna be going in that direction.
0: And more and more campaigns are using online polls behind the scenes, meaning they are already having an important impact on how politicians are taking the pulse of their voters. But just as with any poll, Nathaniel reminds us that the most important thing to pay attention to as a consumer may not be the type of poll The pollster itself.
2: I don't know if I would ever say that the field will be dominated by online pollsters, but they're certainly proliferating and they help to, you know, if you want to do a poll on the cheap, um, you know, not necessarily saying that it'll be bad, but, you know, just for less money, um, an online pollster gives you that option. They're popular with uh, campaigns, for example, um, because of that.
0: Nevertheless, the low cost of running an online poll versus a landline poll means that a larger swath of people can now put their own polls in the field not just legacy media institutions. It could also mean that pollsters could reach whole new parts of the electorate, including people like me, younger voters who can be reached online, but are a lot less likely to pick up the phone and participate in a more traditional survey. Meaning, as the 2020 race heats up, polling may give us the most accurate picture ever of how voters think and feel about a presidential election. That is, if we can check our assumptions at the door and actually let the data speak for itself. Wake Up to Politics is produced by me, Gabe Fleischer, and Tim Lloyd, the senior producer of On Demand and Content Partnerships at St. Louis Public Radio. And if you want to follow the political polls as they come out, you can find my newsletter at wakeuptopolitics.com.